Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 123 for the first half of January 2015. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Karen Stalsnow to discuss the science and pseudoscience of communicating with aliens. Dr. Karen Stalsnow is a linguist, podcaster, and writer who researches language, culture, and religion, and has spent many years investigating paranormal and anomalous claims. Karen is the author of the book God Bless America, Strange and Unusual Religious Beliefs and Practices in the United States. She's the author of Haunting America, The Truth Behind Some of America's Most Haunted Places, and she's the author of Language Myths, Mysteries, and Magic. You can find her at Karen Stallsnow, that's S-T-O-L-L-Z-N-O-W on Twitter, and I'll have links to these on the uh, podcast page, or KarenStallsnow.com. But right now, you can find her on this podcast. So, welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you, Stu. It's great to have you on. Uh, oh, it's great to be on yeah. here. I didn't expect I'd ever be on your show. Well, you never know what happens. Uh, actually, I saw your talk this year at TAM, and I mm-hmm. thought it was really interesting in that it breaks a lot of assumptions that people always use in pop culture pretty much out of necessity in terms of just communication with aliens and i thought hey well there we go that that's a good way to get you on the show yeah we're finally crossing paths yeah uh so to to backtrack from that idea uh i want to start out by asking you how alien communication tends to work in pulp culture, like books or movies or other things? How is it portrayed? Well, let's just say to begin with that uh, this is an area of study called uh, xenolinguistics. It's also known as exolinguistics or astrolinguistics. And it is something that's investigated by a number of different areas, uh, mostly science fiction. Also, some science and scientists will look into this as well, but there's a lot of pseudoscience to it as well. I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. But uh, as you've raised, there, this topic is really treated within science fiction a great deal, and there are many different ways that alien language is dealt with. I think one of the earliest examples of alien language is in a book called Across the Zodiac, and that came out in 1880 by a fellow named Percy Gregg. And that is a... Basically, he created what's known as a a conlang. That's the abbreviation for a constructed language or an artificial language. And these are often used in science fiction. So, for example, you've got examples from Star Trek and Star Wars, things like Vulcan and Ferengi. And they they look at languages, alien languages, in, in many different ways. A popular idea would be transmitting ideas via thoughts rather than using speech. So, yeah, this is known as telepathy or mind transference, and it's really explored in science fiction, and I think probably the best example would be from Star Trek, the Vulcan mind meld. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an example of that during my talk, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, oh, Karen, that was a fantastic talk, but I have to let you know that that wasn't – the picture that you used in your talk wasn't the Vulcan mind meld, it was the death grip. <laughs> I couldn't really tell the difference. I thought they were very similar. So you're not really a Star Trek watcher then? I, I'm not. I mean, I'm a linguist who's approaching this from a different angle. And so I've this has been a steep learning curve for me. <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, on Star Trek, there's the Vulcan mind meld, which is the my mind to your mind thing where they mm-hmm. physically touch and then somehow 
communicate telepathically. That's right. Uh, but there are also other forms of telepathy in Star Trek, uh, like uh, Betazoids. It's really like your, your lips don't move at all. It's your direct voice in someone else's head, as right. opposed to communicating more uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions, experiences, which is more yes. of the Vulcan method. Right, yeah, and there are lots of problems uh, that that are centred around that too, that uh, in, a, in a case like this you'd need to have the sender and the receiver sharing a language because thought projection wouldn't necessarily include automatic translation. And if you were tr- just sharing thoughts or mental pictures instead, that wouldn't necessarily be a replacement for language uh, because it, it is possible to think in terms of pictures, but much learning and abstract thought is mediated by language instead. Uh, but that, that is, that's a, probably the most common method that you'll find in science fiction. There are lots of uh, other examples too, things like universal translators like the Babelfish or Babelfish in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And that's that little fish, the little yellow fish that you place in the ear and it allows a person to instantly understand anything that's said in any form of language. And there's also the TARDIS time machine from Doctor Who which allows its passengers to speak and understand foreign languages and and writing systems. Yeah, Uh, even the writing, which plays a role in several Doctor Who episodes where the TARDIS couldn't figure out how to translate something, meaning that the language was written before the universe began or something like that. (laughs) That was a very weird episode with the devil. but (laughs) Interesting. And there's also the C-3PO, the Universal Translator in Star Wars, which I think is fluent in about six million different languages. Of course, we have uh, many fewer on Earth, about uh, 6,000 languages instead. Really? But, yeah. Are most yeah. of those, um, are those actually considered distinct languages or more dialects? They, these are distinct languages. So many of these languages would have their own dialects as well within that, which considerably increases the number. Okay. Uh, so it seems like in popular culture, uh, as I said, almost out of necessity, because otherwise the shows would be unwatchable, you have various tricks uh, to to get the link, to get people to be able to communicate with each other. Yeah, well, human to human translation is extremely difficult. And all you have to do is go to one of those websites where they've got uh, maybe food products and toys and other items that are in English, the name oh, yeah. for you know, a mixture of of English and Japanese or other Asian languages and just uh, that gives you a good example of how severe translation problems could be in dealing with things like metaphor as well mm-hmm. and idioms that can be very difficult to translate these things if you translate them directly then it doesn't make any sense at all and yeah I remember when I took Spanish in high school I had the, the standard thick giant Spanish to English dictionary and vice versa but I also had a book of something like 5,000 idiomatic expressions just because if, I guess, what, what's a good example in English? Like, something is cool. I mm-hmm. guess that would be yeah, almost an idiom. But a direct translation would mean nothing to anyone who's outside of English as a native speaker. Right, yes. And I'm thinking of an example from English. We'd say on the house for something that's free. If you go to a yeah. bar and they give you a beer. And in the French version translates to in the eye, which doesn't sound as pleasant. No, not, not quite. <laughs> Uh, So you've actually gotten a little bit into my next question, which is, okay, so for aliens, we we have different tricks and techniques to get it to be easily portrayed on screen or in books or in comics or Mm -hmm. whatever. Shortcuts, yeah. Yeah. 
But it seems like even just communicating with people, you know, the same species from the same planet on Earth, mm-hmm. runs into huge difficulties. So I was wondering if you could go maybe into that a little bit. Yeah, well, as I was saying, human-to-human translation is an incredibly difficult thing, and we haven't overcome all of the artificial intelligence challenges that have been presented to us. So for something like alien-to-human translation, uh, it's far more complicated because suddenly we're talking about a species that's taken a different evolutionary path to humankind. So there are going to be radical differences in biology and ecology that are going to have an effect on their culture and cognition. So it just wouldn't be the same thing as human-to-human translation, and it's going to be difficult as well in the absence of common experiences and knowledge. So would we even recognize alien language as being a language? So they might use all different kinds of communication systems. Um, Some of the ideas that have been posited have been things like that aliens might use gestures instead of language. They might use chemicals. And uh, a lot of good examples, too, come from animals, and we can go into that in a bit more detail if you like. Yeah, actually, that was going to be part of my next question. Was okay. <laughs> um, I, One thing that I liked about your talk, uh, Atam, was that you showed just the huge variety of, right here on Earth, how different species uh, communicate with each other, like um, you know, by smell or, or color or something else. And I was wondering if you could go into those a little bit and how those... You know, just on our own planet, how those might apply and how we're still, we as humans have no idea, really. Well, oh, yeah. maybe not it's, no idea, but very, It's something that yeah. the, sorry to interrupt, <laughs> it's some of, the, some of the things that the, the guys at SETI will often talk about, that before we can explore possible alien languages, we need to look at the languages that haven't been deciphered here on Earth in the communication systems. Uh, and so in looking at animals, for example, bees, they use movement and they use scents and they use even food exchange to communicate. I'm sure you've heard of the, the bee dance mm-hmm. uh, where scout bees will go hunting for pollen and nectar and if the hunt is successful, then they return to the hive and they do a little waggle dance. So apparently they shake their abdomens and produce a buzzing sound. And this isn't just for show, this is to indicate where the food is and uh, it, it's just a, a display to communicate all of this information to the other bees. They also use odor cues as well to communicate with members of their colony. And the queen bee will emit pheromones that attract the male drones to mate with her. But these also keep female workers disinterested in mating. And ants, similarly, they'll use smell to communicate. They use pheromones in a similar way to bees. So I'm sure as a kid you probably stepped on ants either deliberately or uh, or, or not on purpose, and that bizarre smell that they emit, that's an alarm pheromone. Hmm. And it's a warning smell that's capable of sending nearby ants into a real frenzy and uh, just a, a sense of worry about what the impending danger is. And they also use scent as a map to lead other ants back home or to a, a new location or to a new food source. And one of the animals that I talked about during my talk were cuttlefish, and how they're really the chameleons of the sea, and they communicate using colour. And they control the pigment in their skin, which changes the patterns that they have on their bodies, and they tend to camouflage themselves so that they won't get found by predators. And they have this kind of neon light show, which they can perform, uh, and they they flash messages in colour. And so during 
mating rituals, the males will develop these patterns like a, a zebra uh, on their bodies. And they'll show one side, uh, one will be a dominant side that they'll show to males and the other side might be a, a more calm display that they show towards potential mates. Hmm. And so females can indicate their interest by turning a grey colour and they also, their beaks will turn green. So it's just an amazing thing, but they use their brains to develop these colours and they're, they're literally thinking the colours onto their bodies. So this is something that we can relate to in a sense because we go through the same thing when we blush. Yeah. So, but I think the most interesting thing about cuttlefish is that they're colourblind. Well, that's... <laughs> Okay, then how does that work? So they have a display for something that they can't quite they're, see? They're perceiving contrasts in colour. So they're not perceiving the colours themselves, but they're seeing different shades. Interesting. So I, I'm thinking in my head, like, all of these apply to, if there is other form of life out there, they mm-hmm. all apply to those forms too. I mean, so all because we speak with vocal cords through mm-hmm. a, a mouth and modulate sound that way with uh, tongue and cheeks and, mm-hmm. and vocal everything which our closest relatives can't even do <laughs> right so yeah all all of that then applies to aliens you know how might they do it not only through the myriad of ways that we have with different species on earth mm-hmm. but there could be others that we simply, you know, we have a data point of, of one for our planet. Yes. And there might be other ways that we just, we can't even imagine of how oh. they might communicate. Yeah, as, as we were saying, it could be uh, a communication system based on taste or touch or smell or electrical impulses or, or something that we haven't yet thought of. So, yeah, off the top of my head, like I'm thinking, you just said electrical impulses. So it could be a situation where a species evolved in... Uh, an environment that's conductive to electricity, and mm-hmm. they evolved a communication system that's you know, almost sort of like Morse code, but electrical pulses through that medium with other. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And it's... and we'd see them, and we would have no clue as to what's going on. Well, we also need to think about their anatomy as well, and if we try to communicate with them, maybe using musical sounds, do they have a sense of hearing? Or if we try to communicate with them using pictures, do they have sight? So we need to think about those differences as well. It's astounding. Well, it worked, it worked in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But. <laughs> yeah, the musical tones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I like that tone. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I think we also need to think about the undeciphered writing systems which exist on Earth. And if you think about uh, writing scripts like the Linear A and the Phaistos disc, the writings that were found in Crete, thousands of years ago and there's also an interesting writing system called rongo rongo from easter island and so if we can't decipher the writing systems of our ancestors then we'll probably have difficulty understanding the language of a species from another world or even uh egyptian hieroglyphs i mean we didn't know what those were or we didn't know how to translate them until the rosetta stone which actually leads me to a question that i hadn't planned but uh i think it would be good to know, because this is something I've often wondered, is say you're an explorer and you come across a completely different language, you know, mm-hmm. completely different routes. You have no idea what's going on. Like, the you know, the first Europeans, say, to, to venture to Japan, how would you even start to develop 
communication system? How would you start to figure out how to translate between the two? That's a really good question. And this is something that's only been around as a science for about 100 years in linguistics. And linguistics came from anthropology. And the way that this started was in going and decoding languages and encoding them as well, uh, which is not only working out how to translate them, but to also write it, create a dictionary, create a sound system for the new language. But this was actually started surprisingly by missionaries. So you can understand the reason that they would do this. They'd be traveling to islands and wanting to communicate with the people to tell them about the word of God. And if they can't speak the same language, then they're needing to be able to communicate with these people. So what we'll often find is that something called a, if you have a group of people and they speak different languages and there's some kind of mutual bridging language, that's called a lingua franca. And that means that everyone can communicate using this often in historically uh, in countries like England and France, that would have been Latin. That would have been the common language that people could speak in. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have anything like that, then you're needing to, to develop some kind of communication system. So in linguistics, we'd call those contact languages. And you've heard of, I'm sure, pigeons and creoles. Those uh, kinds no, of- actually. Okay, I thought you might have heard. There's a language called Hawaiian Creole, and uh, they're basically contact languages which develop when you have people from different backgrounds, different languages who are thrown together in a, in a situation where they need to be able to communicate, but they have no lingua franca. So this often would happen on plantation fields. Uh, it's happened around the world with these groups coming together, and the languages that usually develop will often take maybe the vocabulary of one language and then the grammar of another language. Hmm. And if there are children which are born into that environment and they learn that as their first language, then they're going to need to have that language expanded upon and developed to be able to treat complex and abstract concepts. So often those pigeons and creoles will develop into languages. But it's a whole process where at first it might just be individual words and gestures that people are using to communicate and then it just becomes more and more elaborate and complicated so that you can communicate more more complex ideas. So it's not something like where two people would sit down and like point to a cup and one would say cup and the other one would say <laughs> cup in their language and um, you'd start writing a dictionary like that. It, it could be possible that it's something that a language could be constructed that way but usually it would just be a very natural coming together of these two languages and and one being kind of dominant and another being a bit more uh, subordinate and the two of them being brought together so that you can communicate and it's it kind of makes it 50 50 really Mm. in a sense where you you're taking aspects of two languages okay i i brought up the cup example uh for the probably large fraction of the audience who is familiar with star trek there was an episode where uh, of the next generation, where the translators for one person uh, who was deaf and mute, or not deaf, but mute, um, his translators were killed, and he had to negotiate this piece or something. And the the issue was, okay, how do we get translators for him? Otherwise, right. he can't communicate. And mm-hmm. Data had to quickly learn all this uh, sign language. But the issue was uh, Deanna Troy, the, the half-betazoid, Uh, was talking to Captain Picard and said, okay, well, the problem with language is, say you and I meet, we have no idea what the other's language is, we don't have Mm -hmm. our communicators on, and 
I pick up a cu- this mug and I say, <laughs> and then she you know, said some weird uh, word, and Picard goes cup, and she looks at him and he goes drink, hot, white, <laughs> and it's just like, well, how do you know? Because you know, I it's not even just the language it's also the concept and you you mentioned these abstract thoughts because mm-hmm. okay so i hold up a cup am i trying to indicate handle am i trying to indicate the color the the texture or exactly. what it's holding exactly just it could be referring to something else and i believe uh in the early days of uh the people who came to uh australia from england to populate the country uh, I believe that they had some confrontations with the native people there, the Aboriginal people, and they misconstrued the word kangaroo to mean you know, commonly what we know to be a kangaroo today. So I believe that that was a word meaning something else or it could have even been a word that the English people misheard and they weren't talking about the same thing, but that's stuck now and we refer to that particular marsupial as being a kangaroo. So absolutely, even if you're talking about humans to humans and not humans to aliens – they could be referring to different things. So, bringing it back to uh, alien life, I'm trying to look through my questions. It's like, okay, we covered that, we covered that. <laughs> Ones that I didn't even have to directly ask. Um, but I think what this is leading up to is something that the listening audience probably has an idea, uh, but I'll come right out and say it. It's that it seems as though, based on what we know about communication, that the way it's portrayed in media out of, again, necessity, uh, is probably not how it would really work. And with that in mind, let's get to some of the pseudoscience. Are there good examples of different people who have claimed to communicate with aliens, and yet that communication that they display relies on this pop culture assumption of how communication actually works? Yeah, I think just in starting to answer your your question uh, if we think about a language like klingon which is a constructed language that appears in uh in star trek initially that was just that consisted of a, a couple of words that were created by the character scotty mm-hmm. james Dewan, and then a linguist came in by the name of mark ockrand and he expanded klingon into a fully fledged language that it had its own syntax and vocabulary and its own alphabet and phonology And he tried to make Klingon sound like it was alien by using exotic sounds that aren't common in human languages. So I think that that's often something that these pseudoscientific people will do. They'll use symbols, maybe hieroglyphs, or symbols that are similar to hieroglyphs, and just anything that looks exotic and looks like it could possibly be from another planet or, or solar system. Uh, but the, the people you're talking about, they know themselves as by ni- by many different names. They call themselves contactees or abductees or experiences and or star children. Even. Yes, absolutely. And there have been many of them really over hundreds of years. Uh, and they, they've often received a lot of publicity for their, their claims. So I think a really early one is a woman by the name of Helene Smith. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but she Possibly was Possibly in one of your talks, actually. Probably. So she dates back to the 19th century. She was a Swiss woman, and she claimed that she could talk to Martians. So these were the days where everyone was interested in Mars, and so it seems like there were a lot of people who 
claimed that they were uh, had been abducted on by spaceships and aliens and taken to to Mars and uh, were acquainted with the species there and the languages there. So anyway, with this woman Helene, she would go into these trance sessions and she'd write automatically using the Martian language and alphabet. And she'd describe various scenes that she saw on Mars. And so some early, a very early linguist by the name of Ferdinand de Saussure, he examined some of her examples of writing. And he declared in the end that this was a pretty bad artificial language and that the grammar and the sounds and vocabulary of Martian resembled French, which oh. was her, her native language. So, so how did he determine that? How did he say like it was a poorly constructed artificial language? Well, he just looked at examples of her writing and the, the alphabet that she'd put together and the grammar of the language. And so this is the various structures, uh, the various structures of that language that she gave him examples of. He was able to look at those and to compare those to languages on Earth. And it's surprising how often these languages which people which contactees come forward with resemble languages that are already on earth i think a, another good example is a woman called tracy taylor and she's an australian abductee and she says that she became spontaneously fluent in a star language mm-hmm. and a number of linguists have looked at this language and it sounds like a speaking in tongues which linguists would call glossolalia uh and it's really a bunch of meaningless sounds and it sounds her example sound like Japanese. And the interesting thing is that she did spend some time living in Japan where she was a model. So it's really resembling a human language, not some kind of alien language, but she's also produced a number of examples of alien art, some symbols that she's received. Everything looks very new age. Nothing looks like it would necessarily well, I guess it's her interpretation of something that would come from another planet. Okay. And she she was uh, one of these people who have undergone hypnotherapy on many, many occasions and that you know, she's suddenly able to speak these unknown languages and create all of these weird symbols. And so you know, we, we know a lot about it. these abduction stories, how they're often the product of something like fantasy or delusion or hallucination or just being involved with a regression therapist who can just implant ideas of you know, weird languages and anal probes and stuff like that. <laughs> we don't have to get into the anal probing. No. <laughs> but so it sounds like, at least from these two examples, that one of the way that the uh, alleged contactees or abductees will create the language, whether consciously or not, uh, with intent to deceive or not, is they base it on what they know, which is really, I guess, all they all they can do, uh, because otherwise they just be, unless they are a linguist, mm-hmm. then they sort of just have to go on what they know, which yes. you, you mentioned Klingon. I was wondering, um, I had maybe seen in the special features to Lord of the Rings way back when that Tolkien spent like 10 years actually developing elvish and the dwarf language and these other things and i was wondering is that are are those types of languages much more evolved i guess than or or i don't know uh, official is the completely wrong word but would they be something that you as a linguist could look at and be like 
yes, this actually makes sense as a completely new type of language as opposed to what the claimed contactees would be putting out. Yes, well, I think that they're, the, these contactees, their languages are very simplistic in comparison. And I believe that Tolkien was a linguist, mm-hmm. had some kind of training in linguistics, and that what he put together is one of these constructed languages or artificial languages, and with his understanding of the structure of language, how it works, how we put together parts of words and words and, and sounds and grammar, how everything comes together to create language. Uh, he's able to produce something that is very, even though it's artificial, something that seems very natural and is very complex and much more akin to human language than the kind of crap that a lot of these people come up with. And another example that I like is a woman called Betty Luca. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. I think her I don't think so. maiden name was uh, Betty Andreasen. And she came up with a, a mystical language that had been taught to her by some elders um, who had, I think, abducted her and taken her onto one of their spaceships. And so some linguists have looked at examples of the language that she has produced. And it seems like it's a mix of Latin and Greek and other classical languages. But not only that, she didn't know how to put together a proper constructed language or artificial language, because what she did, it seems, is she's taken words in their citation form, which means that they're unmarked words, the kind of words you'd find in a dictionary that don't have the past tense or present tense affixed to the word somehow. So it's just a list of words in their most basic form. So it's like she's put this language together from reading a copy of Greek for beginners, you know, rather than going into the complexities of, of what a human language is like that involves so many complicated aspects. Uh, I mean, these, these people have been very simplistic about the languages that they're coming up with. Could you give uh, an example maybe of what you mean? Like uh, if you were to speak a, a simple sentence in English that would illustrate what you mean by that, because I'm not entirely oh, sure I understand. It'd be difficult to give an example of a sentence, but let's just take any word, a word like run. Okay. And that's the word that you would look up in the dictionary. You would look up run. You wouldn't look up ran as past tense. You wouldn't look up runs. Uh, you, you would look up the most basic form of that word. So okay. what she's done is she's gone and it seems she's plucked these words out of a dictionary and put them together without any grammar. So the words don't have prefixes, they don't have suffixes, they're not marked for tense, they're just the most basic form of a word, okay. and which shows her lack of understanding of uh, these other languages. <laughs> so it's like if if I were to take, you know, for, or when I took first year and maybe even second year Spanish, I didn't really learn any tenses, it was much more learn the the basic verbs and maybe how to conjugate them a little bit and then learn a lot of nouns, a lot of adjectives. So basically yeah. the whole dictionary memorization. And then it was when I took Spanish in high school that it's, okay, now let's actually get you to be able to speak like someone who's four years old, <laughs> native speaker, <laughs> yeah. and knows their tenses and other things. Yes, it would probably get you by, but it would sound very peculiar. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, actually, so maybe if I get your comment on this, um, there are some channelers or claim channelers. Mm -hmm. One that I'm thinking of in particular is, uh, Nancy Leader, who runs the Zeta Talk. Uh, She was very big in 2003 because she was the one who, 
uh, made a huge splash. Lots of media picked her up saying that Planet X is going to come by. Uh, she apparently said that she killed her dog in preparation for it and various other things. I, I've done an episode on her, so if people want to go back and listen to the archives, they can find it. Mm-hmm. But I think that she did something or does something because she's still around and for some reason people still follow her. She did something that I thought was very clever. She said that she is the conduit to the Zetas. That's what she called her brand of alien. And that she had to take listener questions in her mind and then transfer them to the Zetas. The Zetas would pick them up and answer them. But if Nancy, if she herself did not understand the question and did not understand the answer, then the answer wasn't going to make any sense because she was the conduit for that. Right. I don't know too much about this character, but I think something similar would be an example uh, of Jay-Z Knight mm, yeah. and her channeling Ramtha. And so Ramtha is, I think, maybe about 30,000 years old, and we don't have any examples of language from that period too. So she could make up whatever she wants to make up, but she chooses not to. And instead, Jay-Z Knight will channel in English. And, and so... I think it's uh, these people can really say whatever they like. They don't need to have any evidence to back it up. It's just a, um, it's a matter of uh, looking at how plausible their claims are. And I think uh, with this woman, she's you know, obviously pulling a fast one over everyone, and and she can just make up whatever claims she she likes. And there's just no substance to it at all. Yeah. I did think though, it you know, it was particularly clever of her uh, to say, okay, well, if I don't understand it, then. I can't possibly communicate it to the aliens and they can't answer it. I mean, it was sort of a clever way to get out of that a problem. A nice out, indeed. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, if, if someone's going to say, okay, I'm channeling aliens, well, okay, someone testing them is going to ask about quantum mechanics or you know, advanced physics or various other things that she has right. no idea mm-hmm. about. And so that's her out, which yeah, I always found interesting. Yes, very neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, actually, you gave some good examples of how... I guess, uh, what's a good way of saying it? Of how it's not, I suppose, easy to show, but how one could go about showing that the claim that these people are making of speaking with aliens and communicating with aliens is most likely wrong. And that's from this... Their errors? <laughs> yeah, fr- from looking at the languages that they're claiming are alien and just saying, no, look, this is a really bad copy of some terrestrial language that you probably picked up a book on or it's your native tongue or you went and modeled in that country for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems uh, like that's a general idea. Yeah, I think another good example is Sheldon Nidal, and I spoke about him in my talk at TAM. And uh, I'm not sure if you've heard much about him, but he claims that he's experienced multiple visitations and abductions and that he's even been educated on board alien spacecraft and so these aliens yeah yeah so he's been kind enough to tell us a lot about this and you can go onto youtube and check out his channel uh in which he teaches us how to say hello in six different star languages oh now i remember this from your talk yeah yeah so there's a five minute clip which is absolutely hilarious and he tells us how to say hello in syrian and pleiadian and uh lyran and um herculean all of these languages and it's amazing how similar these sound to languages which are here on earth so one of his greetings is uh i think slumat jar and that's from syrian so he says and being the serious star system as opposed to uh, Syria, the country. 
Yes, that yes, yep, yep, yes. Absolutely an important distinction to make. Yes. <laughs> the Syrians are the ones that I like the most, I'm the most closely associated with. They are very laid back, very spiritual beings. And they, of course, love to play games, just they just love to have time. They're into joy. They're into joy. I like to be into joy, too. Now, the way they say hello is simply salamatja. So if you hear salamatja, it is simply Syrian saying hello to you. Just in looking at that word, salamatja, that's very similar to a word which we find in Indonesian and Malaysian salamat, which is a common greeting word that is derived from an Arabic term, which means peace. So to me, it's just very suspicious that we have languages on earth which are hundreds of miles apart that can be vastly different. And then when we think about space and how far away everything is from us, uh, and here he is saying that these languages that he has been in contact with and has learned uh, is very similar to languages here on earth. That just doesn't make sense. Do you know of anyone who's confronted him with that? And if so, what his response has been? I don't know if anyone has. I think these people are very clever when it comes to marketing and promoting themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think they shield themselves from any criticisms. And uh, so I, I'm not sure if anyone has, has really confronted him. Yeah, it would just be interesting. Uh, I, I say that a lot about the, the pseudoscientists in general, uh, which I'm roughly classifying this person as, um, <laughs> based on, on this information. I'd be very mm -hmm. careful about legal issues. Yes. But, but based on that, it would be interesting if someone were to say, hey, look, this, this looks very similar to an Indonesian greeting. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do you think that might be? You just sort of leave it open like that and not accuse him of anything, but just... Put it that way. Uh, it would be interesting if, if anyone were to do that and what the response would be. Maybe one of my listeners will do that. Yeah, I think that he is probably used to dealing with hecklers being in this kind of industry, an industry, and I'd say that he would have some kind of comeback which would sound plausible to his followers, and that's all it would need to sound. It, right. it wouldn't need to be convincing to a linguist or to an astrophysicist. It would just need to be plausible to his audience. I guess moving on from that, because it's a little bit of a natural segue... What are the ways that you think we actually could try to communicate with intelligent life forms, assuming that they are out there? So, I mean, for example, the Pioneer spacecraft had a plaque on it, which, which showed a, a human, and it mm -hmm. showed a few pulsars, and it showed uh, the solar system and the trajectory mm -hmm. of the spacecraft. There was the Voyager Golden Record, mm -hmm. which I always found a little bit odd, considering it's just a few decades later, and I bet if you talk to a college-age person now, they wouldn't know what a record is. Yeah, those aliens <laughs> are going to have some difficulty finding a turntable. <laughs> yeah, and and then there's the SETI program, which mostly just listens, but they there was, I think, one time when they, they actually sent out a signal, and then I'm reminded of one of the, the first episodes of Stargate SG-1, where they were on this planet where apparently the five great, or the four great races had apparently met to figure out how to communicate with each other by what they did was they looked at different atomic elements and they mm -hmm. said, you know, effectively, okay, this is you know, hydrogen and this is or something. I don't know. Uh, and I'm just curious from a linguist standpoint, because you said that the science of this has only been around for maybe a hundred years or so. How do you think we could go about trying to communicate with 
completely alien species? That is such a difficult question. I mean... And you have two minutes or less. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you mentioned the the pioneer plaques, the the golden plaques. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I should make the distinction that we're not talking about the golden plates of Joseph Smith. Uh, um, no. but <laughs> that's a completely different episode. Probably yeah, that, not that's of a this different podcast. episode. That's right. Uh, but the, the drawings, I know that there were a lot of criticisms for the, the drawings. And I think one of those criticisms was made by scientists, or by, uh, people who were talking about the symbols that were used in the planetary solar system, the diagram that was put together. There was an arrow, I believe that was showing the trajectory mm-hmm. of, of pioneer. And so, people were complaining about this and saying this is something that isn't necessarily going to be understood by other species. This is a a symbol that humans have adopted and is meaningful to us and is not necessarily something that they're going to understand. So even though we look at something like those plaques and think, well, this is going to be readily understood, that's not necessarily the case. I think it's a good attempt, though, and really what we're doing is just attempting all of these things to see what works and you mentioned SETI and they've been around since about 1985 uh they haven't had any success yet so there are two things that we're looking at we're looking at how would we do this and are we going to be successful as well so uh I think a lot of scientists that are delving into this and there really aren't too many people who are doing this sort of thing but they would look at possibly universal languages and so those would be math-based languages uh, like the one in Carl Sagan's Contact. Mm-hmm. Or there's a logic-based language, which is called Linkos, which was developed by uh, a, a Dutch scientist by the name of uh, Hans Froden... I think it's uh, Frodenthal. And I so don't he think thinks, I've heard of that one. Oh, well, this one dates back to the 1960s, and he just created all of these symbols and sounds that could be... sounds that could be used for radio transmissions. and So I think the idea is that using formal languages could somehow work if aliens had human-like thought. But if they don't, again, it's going to be overly optimistic to think that some kind of simplified language that's based in maths and logic could convey these abstract concepts that we didn't undoubtedly encounter. Yeah, like I I know with with, contact, it was receiving prime numbers. Like that was... That was what really set it off as this is not natural because a series of prime numbers does not appear in nature as far as we know. And Mm -hmm. this was actually something that came out with the discovery of pulsars where we we didn't think that incredibly fast repeating signals could happen in nature from an astronomical object and we would get these pulsars like uh, this steady signal with a beat a thousand times a second and they were initially somewhat tongue-in-cheek named lgms little green Mm -hmm. men because it was like this this must be a radio signal from something intelligent and then Mm -hmm. we discovered okay no actually these are stars that rotate really fast and have beams of high energy radio waves and so forth and so forth uh, but it seems like really the math, or since you're Australian, the maths uh, <laughs> method. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, see, even there, it's you know, English to English. It's like, well, this the oh, different words. I would have to say I'm a linguist, but on a daily basis, I have all kinds of miscommunication just in maybe I'll slip back into Australian English and use a dialectal term that isn't used here, or I pronounce something differently, and that can be enough for miscommunication. Yeah, and, and so you know we we have to go. You know we have this communication issue even among 
just different dialects of the same language on Earth. You Even really... within a, a dialect, too. I mean, people oh, yeah. who all speak American English. You've got different accents, different regional accents, and different social accents as well. And so I, I consider be... the, the South a little bit different language, but that's a, that's a separate issue. <laughs> <laughs> they probably think the same way, too. But yeah, yes. again, that's another show. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you really, you really have to go to some sort of, you said lingua franca or franca or yeah, mm-hmm. even there. <laughs> okay, how do you pronounce something? But you really have to go to back to some really basic level. Okay, what is going to show, you know, when we consider trying to communicate with aliens, mm-hmm. how do we tell them even that we're not mindless ants? Right. How, you know, that can build these clever cities. You know, ants have huge, vast colonies. Okay, how do mm-hmm. they know that we can think and are, in you know, so, sort of intelligent? And it's okay, well... Math. Math seems to be the base. And That's logic, good. you said. And it's mm-hmm. okay. How do we communicate that? And prime number thing is, is big. Also, there's the Fibonacci sequence. And yeah, as I said, I hadn't heard about this logic-based language. I'll have to look that up and uh, post a link on the show notes. Yes. And again, if we're using something that is basic, then how is that going to communicate these abstract concepts? So it's a really complicated thing. And uh, you made me think as well of some people on earth who have various neurological conditions in which they see letters and numbers as colors. Oh yeah, the synesthesia. That's right, yes. And so that makes me think that stimuli would be interpreted differently by another species as well. It gets complicated. (laughs) Absolutely. It's an incredible thing to think about, but very frustrating too. But it's, it's definitely something that I think deserves to be explored and it's incredibly interesting. Yes, I I agree, and I mean you you've raised a lot of issues to me that it's you know from a scientific standpoint it's like really how do we overcome even those start to <laughs> try to think about overcoming these and and then it when you realize all of the issues and mm-hmm. all of the uh, I think you you said going back to the beginning of this interview all of the uh, abstract thoughts that go into language and conveying mm-hmm. language and conveying ideas, how would you even start to build that? And then you have these people claiming, oh, yeah, I'm in contact with aliens from such and such place. And, and they, they call them... all the answers. Yeah, and they call themselves the Pleiadians or the Syrians or the Dracoans or Dracons or whatever. And it's like, why would they call themselves something based on a constellation which is pareidolia from an earth-based reference point that even today doesn't look like what the ancient Greeks thought it looked like. (laughs) Uh, Well, then you have some people too who just make it easy on themselves, like David Icke and his claims about the reptilian humanoids and uh, from Alpha Draconis and how they just speak English and we're talking about people like George Bush and the British royal family mm-hmm. and Beyonce and all these people that he claims are you know, these blood-drinking, shape-shifting um, humanoids. and So he, he just makes it simple. And uh, I, I think you've got to be wary with this topic of people who seem to have all of the answers. Well, yeah, well, and, and even the telepathic ones, uh, you said, so yeah, you have the Vulcan Mimeld, you have the, the Betazoids, and you have you know, various other creatures communicating telepathically in mm-hmm. science fiction and even fantasy. I just started watching Merlin and some of the druids can communicate telepathically or something. Oh, cool. <laughs> and it's just like, so even then it's, 
it's this type of abstract thinking, like going back to the Star Trek example of a cup. Okay, if I project an image of a cup into your mind, mm-hmm. what am I actually trying to project yeah. the thought of? You could be talking about the object itself, or you could be talking about what is contained within it. Or, or the shape. or the Some color. other aspect of it. So just being able to share images or sounds is not necessarily going to, for what we have an understanding of what these mean, but is that going to mean anything to these other species? Yeah. Not necessarily. <laughs> it could be deemed to be something threatening to them even and, and dangerous. Yeah, well, uh, Futurama covered that in uh, one-third of an episode in, I think, the last season that they did with uh, aliens who communicate only by dancing. And it was, oh. <laughs> it was okay, well, how do we communicate peace? And, you know, Fry and Bender tried to communicate peace in this very stupid way, and the aliens mm-hmm. thought, okay, that's, no, that's the war dance or whatever. Yeah, I think on the, the Pioneer plaque, too, there's a, the man is holding up his hand as a symbol of goodwill and kind of like a wave, and yes. even gestures can be interpreted differently across cultures. Yeah, well, and the woman has one hand in, on front of her leg and one hand behind her. And, okay, what well, that could mean something. And her positioning yes. relative to the man. And, you know, it's... How would even an alien species who, you know, the... I think maybe it was Carl Sagan or someone else said, we have we are likely to have more in common biologically with a petunia than with an alien species. How would they even <laughs> know that those are meant to be the intelligent life form? Mm-hmm. on this plaque oh indeed yep they're just a set of symbols that could be interpreted in any way yeah okay well Lightly that misinterpreted that leaves me depressed <laughs> <laughs> oh i i think it's a gosh when you're talking about astrophysics it's just such a, a huge topic and uh, i think it's you know, something that we should be maintain an interest in and, and just not be scared of or um, or overthink at the same time. But it can be difficult to not do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've raised so many issues with just trying to figure out the communication systems here on our own planet mm-hmm. and just how that, the, you know, the vast implications for what that means for how we would even start to try to communicate with something off the planet. And, oh, I think we've just scratched the surface of the topic, too. Yeah, and uh, it's gone on for probably, uh, you know, once I edit it down a little, uh, maybe 40 minutes or so. And yet, it, it, we've just scratched the surface and raised so mm-hmm. many issues. And then, you know, I get back to the pseudoscientists, and it just, it amazes me how... And I, I don't mean this word when I say it. And again, we get into the issue of language. I, I don't mean the word that I'm going to use, but I'm going to use it. it. It's almost amazing how simplistically stupid they think communication is or would be. Uh, and, and yet they have all these followers who think the same way and just That's a good point. are able you know, to do it. Uh, I think that just in, in my time as a linguist, they're... We all speak a language or maybe even more than one language. And so, therefore, it seems as though we feel qualified to be able to understand language. And so I think that these people feel like they can manipulate their followers who are, I mean, some of these groups are cults. Um, have you heard of a guy called Benjamin Krem? I have. Yes. At all? Yeah, yeah. He's. I went to a lecture given by one of his acolytes a couple of years ago, and it was very strange. They're the ones that believe that uh, uh, they they merge religion and 
uh, ufology together, and they oh, believe. Like the, oh, the Raelians. Yes, yes, yes. And they also believe that extraterrestrials visit us from Venus and Mars all of the time, and that we should call these people or these creatures space sisters and space brothers. We shouldn't call them little green men or anything like that, or aliens, because that's discriminatory. And I've been accused of that before by uh, Jeff Peckman for calling aliens little green men. Uh, Jeff um, Peckman is a different subject. Yeah. For that, I might have your husband show. on. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, he would love to talk about him. Loves to hate him. <laughs> but um, We'll have to have a big disclaimer uh, before that one. <laughs> yes, yeah. But that would be an interesting show for sure. And so I think that these people have followers. They've created cults and their audience is in a position where they are very suggestible and believe anything that's told to them. So they don't have too much work to do and no one really thinks too much about language and just how complex it is. And linguistics is a science. There are some areas that are more scientific than others. And a lot of people would dismiss it and say, oh, it's a, one of the humanities, or it's a social science, a soft science, but it's there are a lot of hard aspects to it. And it's infinitely more complicated than the average person would see it to be. Yes. I think we can say that about most topics. Uh, but as you said, this is one where, okay, I've been speaking a language for yeah, maybe about 30 years, maybe a little less. I don't know when I started to develop language skills. but yeah, So I think that I, I know at least something about it. But after talking with you and you know, just sort of bouncing these ideas back and forth, it really is a much, much harder problem than a cursory glance would have you think. Yeah, that's right. And these pseudoscientific people are very superficial about treating anything to do with language. And I'm sure for their audiences, it's more about their experiences and their feelings, as you were discussing earlier, than about language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, the same goes for uh, claimed psychics it's like it's more do you come out of it feeling like the alleged psychic gave you useful information yes. or did they actually give you useful information mm -hmm. and yep. yeah it's it's very much the former case yeah uh, in about every the... case that i have seen mm -hmm. personal experiences <laughs> yes yes <laughs> uh okay uh well i think that we're digressing a little bit but i think that it's it's an interesting way to wrap up, just sort of summarizing these and the issues and the simplicity that the pseudoscientists give this topic. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really even want to call them pseudoscientists because it's not really approached it anyway from a scientific standpoint. Maybe these yeah, these characters, then these contactees, yeah. claimed contactees. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, I think could be a legally neutral term. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you'd have to CYA. Uh, with that in mind, um, is there anything else that you think is important to this topic that we haven't really talked about yet? I think we've given the topic a pretty good overview, really. I think that was uh, that, that's really about it. I don't think there's anything that I, I wanted to say outside of that. I mean, there are some actual scientists who are a little bit dodgy in their investigations into to this sort of thing as well uh so i think it's you know we can talk about these people these contactees and say that there's they're the pseudoscientists there's no science behind what they're doing but there are some legitimate scientists who are doing work that is questionable and there was Could a you give an example not necessarily naming names I mean, besides like the pioneer plaque you gave was a, an interesting example i hadn't thought of like the arrow who's to say an arrow means anything to anyone well, I'm thinking about an individual in particular. I don't think it would be a problem 
to okay. mention his name, but he's uh, Dr. John Lilly, and he died back in about 2000, I think. Okay. If they're and dead, they're not going to sue. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's safe. I can see how concerned you are about that, and I should be too. Uh, and so he did a lot of pioneering work with dolphins, and he was hopeful that in researching interspecies communication that somehow this could be a key for us to understand extraterrestrial languages that we might encounter in the future. And he had a semi-secret society that was called the Order of the Dolphin. And funnily enough, Carl Sagan and Frank Drake were members of this organization. Hmm. And so initially he started out and he was doing some legitimate research into dolphins and their communication. And in the end, he started drifting away from the mainstream and uh, he had a house that he had flooded with seawater and he had an assistant who was living in the house living with this dolphin. And she was wearing a swimming costume and eating, drinking, sleeping, everything in water beside one dolphin in particular named Peter. And so it's said that she was able to teach the dolphin how to pronounce an approximation of some words like hello and the number one, things like that. Uh, but he started getting into just a really bad area i think of science where he was doing some invasive experiments with the dolphins injecting hmm. them with lsd to see if it would affect their vocalizations at all which it didn't and he came to believe in the end that dolphins are aliens who share our planet so oh, he tried okay. to talk with them using mental telepathy so i think it's just a good example of how even scientists can descend when we're talking about a topic like this that is just so difficult to pinpoint that some legitimate scientists can just start going a little bit insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's easy to be misled when you don't think critically and re-examine everything as you go, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, not all scientists are critical thinkers, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. <laughs> <laughs> I, I face that a lot when I review papers and grant proposals. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's... It, it's a very interesting topic. and It, as it is, said, and it gives you a headache. Yeah, sure. I mean, it really does. But it also gives you a greater appreciation for the difficulty of this topic and, again, the, the pure simplicity that the claimed contactees use with this topic. And I think that that's sort of what I try to do on this show in general, is I try to show that some of these very seemingly simple claims, when you really look into it, are just huge challenges or mm -hmm. don't work with the, the way that we know how everything else works. They're just not compatible. Yep. And, that's really well yeah. summed up. <laughs> Okay, well, with that sum up, let's not ruin it. Um, and I will say uh, thanks for coming on and spending about oh, an hour with me. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm yeah. a big fan, and it's a real compliment to be on a show like this. Well, thank you. Well, and thanks for having me on Point of Inquiry two years ago. <laughs> You're welcome. That was a great episode. We had a lot of good feedback about that. Yay. Uh, okay, well, if, if you come up with another topic that maybe we can figure out how to work in. Uh, we'll try to work it in at some time. Uh, until then, again, um, anyone can find you online at karenstallsnow.com. And again, there will be a link up in the show notes. So thanks. Thank you.
Thanks again to Karen for coming on to the podcast. I wanted to start the new year with something a little bit different, something uh, perhaps lighter, but it ended up being a little bit depressing towards the end just because this really is such a difficult problem to try to really figure out how we would even start to attempt to communicate with an alien species or aliens in general or even species that are reasonably intelligent on our own planet like really how would you communicate with a cuttlefish it's not really necessarily a stupid animal it does have some its own language how could we start to communicate with it how would we start to communicate with ants or with bees? They have incredibly highly evolved social structures and their own communication systems. And yet, we, while we can interpret some of what they do, our ability to actually communicate with them and tell the ants, hey, get out of my house, you know, that kind of thing, we don't really even know how to start to do that. So... As I said, this was a different kind of podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting. Of course, you can always send feedback to podcast at sjrdesign.net. As I said, there will be several different kinds of links in the show notes, including to Karen's website or Twitter account, as well as some of the different topics that we addressed in the episode, like the uh, the languages and the prime numbers and the, the idea of a lingua franca and maybe even a Klingon Dictionary. Uh, head on over to the podcast website. That is podcast.sjrdesign.net. And you can find some of these links that I've assembled. That wraps up this topic for the 123rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or a comment on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can tweet me, at pseudo, that's P-S-E-U-D-O, astro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and if you have any suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, Tell friends, family, two random people you'll never meet in real life, and your favorite linguist.